0: Welcome to a holiday-shortened week edition of OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. I have a very special guest who's going to join me for a few minutes to talk a little bit about what we saw in the public markets in the first half of 2023. That would be Guy Adami. He is my co-host on On the Tape podcast on Market Call. And on CNBC's Fast Money Guy, welcome to OKPG. When you said you had a special guest, I'm like, wow, I wonder who that is. And then you said it's me. I'm like, that's Well, we also do have a very special guest, Adam Nelson. He's a partner over at FirstMark Capital. as a VC firm here in New York City. And he also partners with our good friend, Rick Heitzman, who's the CEO and founder of FirstMark. And Adam and I talk a little bit about the current private environment, what's going on in fintech and how AI is working its way into basically every part of the private tech market ecosystem. So stick around for that conversation. But Guy, thanks for joining me. I just wanted to quickly run through a little bit some of the thoughts. I know that you style yourself as a generalist as it relates to the markets. I think that any generalist over the last call it five to 10 years is spending more and more time on tech as it works its way into almost every industry from energy to industrials to healthcare. The list really goes on and on. And one of the things that you and I have talked a lot about on the pods over the last few months or so is just how narratives work themselves through, right, the markets. It's one thing to have something that everybody in the industry knows is happening, right? So let's talk about AI, for instance, right? So if you are an engineer at one of these major platform companies, a programmer, right? Or you're somebody who plans out tech infrastructure or logistics or whatever. You have been thinking about machine learning technology, right? You have been thinking about generative AI. You've been thinking about all of these things and what it takes to do that, the sort of hardware, the chips, right? What sort of supercomputers, the data centers they go in, the software that optimizes it, the software that learns, the software that structures data. And it it like, it helps productivity and all that sort of thing. So to those folks This is not new. This is what they've been doing. But for some reason, and I would love to get your sense, for some reason, market participants, investors, even strategists that you and I have talked about this, this is really fascinating, strategists that were bearish on the overall markets have changed their tune in the last couple of months because they wanna think about the positive implications of AI in other industries and how that could usher in a new era of economic growth or something. So talk to me a little bit about that from your perspective.
1: It's excitement. It is, I don't want to say it's irrational exuberance, but it's clearly exuberance. I think there are a lot of people out there that think this is the most important time in history since the basically the discovery of electricity. People have said that. And listen, I get it. It is exciting. There are growth opportunities across a swath of industries. Question really comes down to one point of this entire frenzy gotten ahead of itself. And some of the rhetoric you've heard over the last few months around individual stocks and the space that you just alluded to harkens back to a time that we saw, I don't know, 24, 25 years ago when people were saying very similar things about the internet. And Now, those the internet did not go anywhere. The internet is clearly still here but the frenzy around at the time obviously took valuations to unsustainable levels and my concern is if i have a concern we're seeing history repeat itself again i think ai is not going anywhere by the way to your point it's been around for quite some time i think google's been probably working on ai for the last 15 or so years so it's not necessarily something new i think the excitement around it is clearly new but in terms of the story we're seeing what we saw couple decades ago, play out right before our very eyes. And again, AI is not going anywhere, but the valuations, in my opinion, almost have nowhere to go but lower. Oh, yeah. It's funny. Like when
0: you think about what is artificial intelligence, right? And there's obviously many forms of that, but just think about one of the reasons that people have loved Amazon, love shopping on Amazon. This is the part of the company that basically has no margin, right? If you look at the, some of the parts of Amazon their North American retail operation has basically been valued at nothing, at zero. It's AWS and a handful of other logistics and sorts of investments, and their advertising business is growing fast. And when you think about why has Amazon's retail business been so sticky with consumers, because of their recommendation engine, their ability to structure data. So those are, that's AI, right? Why is Netflix so addictive? Why do you, when you get done watching that one thing, and they auto-play something else that they think you're gonna like, that is also artificial intelligence. So when you think about a lot of these technologies, they've already been embedded, right, in, in lots of services and products that you use. And it brings me to, when you think about, it's one thing, when this started out at the, in January, February, this was after OpenAI launched their chat GPT-4, and there was finally a commercialized product that you could put your finger on, right, where you could see the benefit of using this sort of technology, and Microsoft, because their investment from a couple years ago and then the $10 billion investment made it this year, investors started extrapolating what this could mean for their ability to take share versus Google in online search. And so we saw. The market caps ping pong back and forth like $200 billion. To me, it was like the later stages over the last couple of months where we saw lots of folks start to extrapolate. So talk to me, Guy, when you think about clearly NVIDIA, we saw from their guidance in Q2 and their the interest of so many folks in maybe double, triple ordering these advanced chips that empower this sort of compute. But it broadened out, right? It broadened out to Intel. It broadened out to AMD. It brought it out into some of the others. And we've already seen AMD come back a bit. We've seen Intel come back 10% a bit. Is some of the froth starting to come out of the names that you can't put your finger on directly?
1: Yeah, some of it, but not nearly enough. And you mentioned AMD. AMD is a great company. We mentioned Lisa Sue all the time, the CEO there. She's done a remarkable job. And the stock has acted in kind. But you go back a couple months ago when they reported their earnings, and we've talked about this on Beyond the Tape podcast, Market Call, Fast Money. I'm sure you've probably talked about it on OK Computer the quarter that they put up was not particularly great. The stock, as a matter of fact, went up down about 10% in a straight line. It wasn't until May 5th the next day when the headline about them partnering with Microsoft to make a chip that would compete with NVIDIA, the stock then proceeded to go up north of 50%, percent five zero percent over the course of maybe a month and a half. And that is not a particularly healthy move. It's healthy if you own the stock. And it's exciting if you own the stock, but you have to ask yourself really what was going on there. I mean, that was clearly a markup just in terms of hope and this whole, again, total addressable market that they potentially have. And the fact that they were now throwing their hat in the ring. And we've seen this across a wide array of different stocks. And I understand the importance of it. To your earlier point, though, it's not like it hasn't been around. I think the exuberance is around sort of the amount of media coverage it gets and it starts to feed on itself. But remember this as well, the media coverage that takes these things higher could be potentially the same media coverage that takes it lower. We've seen it on a wide array of different things, not least of which, obviously, Bitcoin, which the media championed all the way up, and then the media criticized the entire way down. Yeah, so let's talk about
0: earnings season. And again, we've had some dramatic moves. The Nasdaq in the first half of the year, the Nasdaq 100 closed up nearly... 40%, 40%, which is pretty astounding when you think about it, it was down thirty some percent last year in 2022. It's still not above those prior highs. That's just math here. But when we go into Q2 earnings guy, and you think about all the excitement, the euphoria that is centered around this these top seven names, which I think even Tesla, you can throw in there as enjoyed a little of this kind of AI pixie dust, they're discounting a lot of good news. And so Q2 earnings baked in the cake at this point, it really is about Q3 guidance for the back half of the year. Is there one name that you think you'd be most worried about? And there's one name that probably does okay based on, let's say, more muted expectations. And I'll just say on the latter, I'd say that might be Google, the alphabet. I know that, again, that was really an underperformer earlier in the year after OpenAI's chat GPT launch and their affiliation with Microsoft and the idea of the market share transfer. I don't think that's coming anytime soon. And I look at the valuation of Google. I look at its relative underperformance to some of those peers. And I say to myself, on next year's numbers, trading about 19 times, expected to grow earnings, let's say high teens and sales, let's say low teens or something like that. That one looks like it's discounting right now, whereas let's say others seem to be incorporating a lot of enthusiasm about what might come.
1: The Exactly. It's what might come in the enthusiasm around it, and it's get ahead of the crowd, buy the stocks, and hope at a certain point becomes a greater fool's theory. The one name that concerns me, again, it's a great company, it's Microsoft. Microsoft is now trading evaluations, which you haven't seen in quite some time. I want to say last I looked, it's a stock that's probably trading north of or right around 30 times forward earnings. Again with a company that's still growing but the growth has slowed without question their cloud growth has slowed and now there's the optimism around AI and stuff but you have to ask yourself has it gotten ahead of itself in terms of the stock price and into the quarter I think it absolutely has
0: all right listen guy dami I wanted to take your temperature as we kind of get this q three started, the second half of the year, again, with the S&P up 16% of the year and the NASDAQ up 32%, the NASDAQ 100 up nearly 40%. Like for this to continue at even some sort of pace, we just need a lot of great things to happen. And we need to see some of the commercialization or at least we're gonna have to see analysts revise their estimates up based on what they think a lot of this new technology integrated into these products and services are gonna do. I just don't think that's gonna happen. I don't think we're gonna see that in the back half of this year. I think that's a second half 2024 story. I also think there's risk to margins, right? When you think about the pricing for a lot of the things that make all of this compute possible, chips, data center, supercomputers, I just think the demand for them, the double and triple ordering that they're likely seeing just to keep pace could weigh on margins. So that's one of the stories that I think could be a Q3 earnings story, but we're not gonna know that for a few weeks. Guy. Thank you for joining me this morning. Pleasure. Okay, computer. We appreciate it, people. This is going to drop on July 5th. So we hope that you had a great nation's birthday and stick around for my conversation with Adam Nelson from First Smart Capital.
1: and Cross River Bank member FDIC. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros.
0: Welcome back to OK Computer. I am joined here by a friend of mine, Adam Nelson. He is a partner over at FirstMark Capital. I think many of our listeners know Rick Heitzman, who is the CEO, co-founder of FirstMark. I've gotten to know Adam over the last year and a half or so, we've had lots of great conversations about fintech. You are focused on fintech over at First Marks. Adam, welcome to OK Computer. Oh, thanks for
2: having me. Excited
0: to be here. All right, let's talk about this because your background's really interesting. You were an operator. You worked at some very like prominent firms in Silicon Valley, and you made your way to New York as a VC here. You were also uh, an investor out there a little bit. Love to walk through a little bit of your background here and how you got to First Mark here in New York City.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I just saw a tweet today about how liberal Wait, arts had tweet you, a tweet? You, yeah. That, still on, on uh, Twitter? still use the Twitter. Yeah. I abandoned my mastodon a little bit ago, but no, I uh, there was a tweet about how liberal arts concentrations are going down nationwide, and yeah. that's a good thing. I was like the quintessential liberal arts student, and actually I think like that trend has followed throughout my career. So I tried three or four different majors in college, everything from like neuroscience to architecture, and then ended up in poli-sci with doing a lot of econ. Mm-hmm. Came out of school in 2006 and had no idea what I wanted to do yeah. with my life, and that for. A bunch of people who had no idea what they wanted to do with their lives at that time they ended up on wall street so i got like a good four-year investment banking Mm -hmm. private equity training ground focusing on consumer products so everything from like chicken production and pepsi and coke and Mm -hmm. beverage and nothing at all with tech but i was really lucky because i got the opportunity to go out to stanford for business school out to the west coast and very cliche like within a month of being in silicon valley was like hey this is like i've been going to chemicals plants in new jersey and mm-hmm. i could actually be thinking about these companies like facebook and twitter that were really changing the world in pretty compelling ways i got excited i took the opportunity to be a student there to take nights weekends mm-hmm. every minute i had to become like an intern and offer free services to folks like twitter startups like cove which eventually got by Dropbox, mm-hmm. which is how I ended up there, Stripe in the very early days. So got some pretty incredible experience through that. And then ended up joining Dropbox full time when they were just launching their business product and helped to build out a couple different business units over there, all focused on kind of partnerships and basically how you create levered distribution. That's like a big theme I get excited about, b 2 b to cb 2 b to b just anything that kind of gives you a cheat code and how you get software in the hands of users and businesses. Love the experience, wild growth at Dropbox, 10x on every metric mm-hmm. over three years that I was there was a very exciting talent pool. Very grateful for that experience. And then moved over to the investing side, got recruited by the folks at Social Capital, Chamath, Mamoon, Ted, really incredible team and learned how to do early stage investing. It's kind of a cool combination of my history on traditional finance and and also the experience of entrepreneurship being an operator. And I think that kind of like combo just felt right and was the right fit and then had the opportunity to come back home to New York and join the folks at FirstMark and it's been an incredible path ever since.
0: So talk to me if you're a liberal arts major, you just graduated in 2023 here and uh, generally again, what do people do? They go to consulting, they go to banking, they do this that What is the path towards VC? I get this question a lot. I've been a public markets investor and when I got out of college in the mid 90s, people wanted to go to Wall Street and so there was banking, there was uh, sales and trading, investing on the buy side. VC wasn't really a thing. Private markets weren't a thing. And it's really interesting because Rick and I are very similar in age. I think he graduated from college a year before me, but the fact that he was doing privates at a multi-strat fund in 2000, I didn't know anybody doing that. I knew people that worked at the fund that he'd worked at Pequot, but they were all trading public markets. So what is the typical path right now? for VC. I know what it is for PE. These guys and gals, they get out of finance major. They go do investment banking for a couple of years. They literally start interviewing right away for that job two years out or thinking about business school. But VC seems a bit different.
2: It's interesting. You also then have to adjust for the last 10 years in VC may not have been representative of certainly what the norm is and and what the next 10 years might look like. I think the Easiest answer is to say there's no hard and fast rule. I feel like when I was coming out of business school, the trope was business school students are useless. Don't back them for entrepreneurs. Don't have them become VCs. In my class, I have uh, folks like David Velez from New Bank, who started tens of billions of dollar company and a ton of friends who are really successful VCs. I, I think the common knowledge is always a little suspect. On the At the same time, a bunch of folks who have failed on that. Stepping back, if you think about a VC and what you're asked to do every day, you know, especially being an investing partner, there's going to be some mixed biz dev, right? Some people do an incredible job doing kind of over-the-top marketing. Some people are on Twitter all day. Mm-hmm. Some people are at events all the time. So it's like sales. It's like you're a brand and you're thinking about the right way to get your message out into the market. There's obviously the kind of thematic investing side of it, Mm -hmm. understanding where the world is going in a very macro way, because you're making bets that ultimately need to pay off on a five to 10 year time horizon. Mm -hmm. But the best ones are probably non-obvious at the time that you're making them. You have to pick the individual companies. You have to know those companies, get close to them. You have to then win a competitive situation. Mm -hmm. And then you have to. Generally, for kind of hands-on investors like us, be hand-in-hand with those companies and help them from the earliest stages to IPO and beyond as a kind of a sounding board and help be a a force multiplier. There is this kind of massive set of things that are all lumped together in one core that I think is both what makes it really exciting. It makes it a little amorphous. I know a lot of folks who come into the industry and just don't even know where to start. I think the ramp period is really long. I think anybody who tells you differently is either lying or had an experience where it wasn't long because they lived through this kind of crazy bubble over the last couple years. Because it's such a kind of composition of different skill sets and different temperaments, I think there are a lot of different ways to be successful. And I think you can look at the Midas list and find people who are on Twitter every day and find people who don't have a Twitter account. You can find people who have been doing venture for their entire life. You can find people who started in venture full-time when they were in their 40s. Any of those actually work. And if you look at truthfully the history of venture that will have been the case i think it all comes down to being able to find the right themes find the right networks and then execute on that core particularly well so
0: let's talk a little bit about you came back to new york you were a fintech focused investor here it seems that as you've had this exodus of silicon valley throughout the last few years and it really did spread out obviously austin miami feels like new york and i've said this on many occasions and i'm not being biased, because this is my home, but I see it all around me, it really seems to be a massive beneficiary in a way that Miami will not likely be. And, and there's a lot of crypto bros and, and doing that sort of thing. But just because the proximity to Wall Street, it seems like this is the place for FinTech. Talk to me a little bit about your focus. You said you started out going to chicken plants and doing a lot of consumer-focused things, but finance has become a very inherently consumer-focused thing. And I could, you and I could go through lots of examples how some of the big financial institutions, they've missed certain tech trends. They go in, they make really bad acquisitions. We could talk about Goldman Sachs has made a huge push in, fi- in consumer finance. And none of it seems to be really working. And then you see these other companies that just start from scratch. You just use the example of NewBank, one of your Uh, business school, you know, partner. I mean, like literally, you know, a a massive company started from scratch in a geography that a lot of folks weren't too focused on. Talk to me a little bit about your focus there and what your outlook is and also being here in New York. Do you agree with me that this is really an important place to be as a fintech investor, especially in the private market?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think maybe I'll answer both questions with the same theme, which is, I think the most exciting thing that's happened over the last decade is that we've been able to produce things that were very hard to build, that were very kind of labor intensive to build, that had their own core defensibility. Mm -hmm. And we've been able to do a really good job of actually delivering those as some abstraction layer, right? I think if you look at the theme of the last 10 years in Silicon Valley, it's been true, whether that's cloud computing, whether that's just the know-how to build a startup and what YC has done, as well as just democratizing, I'd say, a lot of the core tenants of startup building. And and then I think finance is now, like we're at that kind of next tier in, in fintech. And so I think that's the thing to get really excited about. And in some ways, even at the time I joined Firstmark, I wouldn't have defined myself as necessarily a fintech investor. I was really interested in this idea that all of the big kind of legacy industries that I had spent time investing in could be revolutionized in some way by software, right? Like a lot of the stuff that was very old hat to me, sitting in front of my Apple PC at Dropbox and going into Slack and using Google Sheets and building on AWS, was things that were that future was not actually evenly distributed, was actually really hadn't impacted big legacy Did industries. Did Web3 fix that? No, No, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, that's for uh, (laughs) the the next bubble bubble cycle. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that was the theme I got excited about. And I thought SaaS effectively being delivered into that, that sort was going to be the big wave that I was falling on. So I would have defined myself as vertical software and in some ways. Fintech would have been a vertical that we focused on. I think the really exciting thing over the last couple of years, and in some ways it was enabled by the massive glut of venture capital that went into fintech startups, Mm -hmm. the ability to build a bank, embed payments, to embed lending, to do underwriting, all of this stuff went from a kind of core IP that was built within these companies, Mm -hmm. even within a new bank, and could be delivered as effectively a microservice that could be managed through software. Now, it's not as easy as going and spinning an AWS server, think about what it used to be, which was a bank charter and five years of Mm -hmm. getting in business and everything. We're certainly further along that spectrum. And I think we're really excited about a lot of the infrastructure companies today that are building that future. And so as I step back, I thought that a little bit of the prepared mind of being in vertical software and talking to a bunch of companies there, many of which were having trouble monetizing, having trouble trying to get large industries like construction or logistics, et cetera, to onboard to their software. M- much of that was happening because you couldn't embed a transaction layer there. Like you couldn't go and do the buying and selling mm-hmm. of goods in the software because you couldn't do payments, you mm-hmm. couldn't put liquidity in. And I think that, like, that is the big thing we get excited about right now is instead of building a new bank from scratch, it's like, what are the kind of core banking primitives Mm -hmm. that can be delivered in the workflow tools that you're using every day when the kind of standard is pen and paper? and fax machines and PDFs, which it still is in a lot of these industries. There's just a massive opportunity to bring them online.
0: Yeah, we had a great conversation last week on the pod with Stuart Stopp, the CEO and co-founder of Current, one of our fine sponsors of the podcast, and his co-founder, Trevor Marshall, who's the CTO. And really, we talked a lot about this and how they built from the ground up. And it was actually a great conversation. But you had a blog on the First Mark website last month. It was May 31. We'll put it in the show notes. Negative CAC and the next generation of fintech. And I thought this was really interesting. Negative CAC is the go-to-market and product strategy that enables companies to acquire a net new customer at no marginal cost, at an extension of the paid functionality of their software delivers to existing customers. Talk to me a little bit about that. How did you, it seems like something that you've been developing this thesis. I see the through line with what you just discussed here a little bit, but I thought it was a really great note. And it seems like this is kind of a path where... You're taking all of those skill sets that you have been working on over the last 15 years or so. And now this is basically a new thesis, how you're thinking about SaaS and FinTech and the like.
2: It's all happening for, for me and I think for the industry all at the right time. I think basically the core thesis there, and it builds off what I was just describing, where a lot of the kind of financial services infrastructure is now able to be built into software that folks will use on a daily basis. And I think as a result, what we're seeing is the ability to take that that workflow tool. So think about property management software. Sounds a little boring, right? But this is every building in New York is being managed using some software product. They're trying to figure out how you collect rent. They're trying to figure out how you manage maintenance requests, how you do move-ins. And that is, in some ways, a sleepy little hole of the vertical SaaS industry. But then you think about how much payment volume and how much economic activity is going through that one software platform, right? So you have all of the tenants and all of their spend, and rent is like the number one spend item for a tenant. You have the landlords themselves who are getting paid out from these property management companies, and you have the property managers who are effectively paying contractors and spending to go fix toilets Mm -hmm. and spending on new pipes and that sort of thing. If you think about it, This one software product actually gives you access to three different kind of core customers for financial services that are pretty well understood. So if I said a consumer-facing credit card, you know what that's worth to you. A consumer kind of uses it as their primary spend card. And Built Rewards is a company that's done a really nice job hitting that niche. If I talk to you about that property management company, You would say you're doing receivables factoring, payments factoring, spend management, so you can give them an actual card that gets interchanged. Those are well understood revenue streams that financial services companies get. And then, if you think about the landlord, insurance, mortgages, again, being able to get paid instantly rather than waiting 30, 60, 90 days. And then, underlying, if you can manage that whole kind of revenue stream, the float associated with it. It's like a very narrow example, but. I just described t- six different financial services that would normally be built to service all of these different customers. And I think the thing that gets us really excited is because of all of these fintech infrastructure layers and kind of banking primitives, that could probably be accessed in a one, two year time frame. So all of a sudden there's a trillion dollars that can all go through this platform that can be leveraged in really interesting and ways.
0: And that's the acquisition of a net new customer at no marginal cost, right? Yeah, because that's of, a, it's. Yeah.
2: it's that, and not only that, but you're getting paid Yes. Yeah. To, it, because everybody pays for property yeah. management software. Yeah. So the property manager is paying you, but you have all of these kind of other revenue streams that in some cases are being monetized based on completely different customers because of where they sit in the value chain. And that's the thing we get really excited about is so, like all of a sudden you're taking what seems like a relatively capped TAM part of a market, you're multiplying it by maybe 10x all of the different adjacent financial streams that they have access to.
0: You just gave, I I think, what you think is a a niche example, but it's a really good example. What are some industries that you think are saturated with this sort of kind of behavior or the way they're being served? And what do you think are some that are going to be really big, like really interesting TAMs as you think about the different companies that might agree exactly with what your vision is and they're building
2: for that? I think we're still in the earliest days. I think like Toast has done a really Mm -hmm. nice job, right, in restaurants. I think Square. I think some of these payments was the sharp tip of the spear here. It was very clear how you could monetize those. And folks went through the largest kind of consumer payment endpoints. So I think those may be a little tougher to get into. And I think in some ways why I'd be really excited about companies like Toast and Square in the public markets, because I think they have so much room (laughs) to run based on where they sit in the funds flow for restaurants, Main Street, etc. But I think the real kind of core of the economy, the B2B wholesale part of the economy, construction supply, trucking, that I think is still in the earliest days because up until even a year ago, most of the companies that are offering some of these infrastructure layers really weren't ready. And I think we're still at a level where there's a lot of vaporware relative to (laughs) what is possible. But I think if we look five, 10 years out, our belief is that you're going to see a bunch of companies that have these compound business models. There's some SaaS piece there's some payments piece, there's some other financial services piece that are going to be going public and will effectively be creating kind of net new value in the core verticals that they're going after, as well as taking share from the traditional financial services infrastructure. Because if you think about it, for banks, their best bet on how to acquire a customer is let's go Sponsor our Basel and yeah. let's go put our sign on a bench outside the street and a bunch of branches. That's the difference between that and saying, Hey, you're about to get paid in 30 days. Do you want that money now for a 1% fee? And we understand how to underwrite that because we know so much about the customer, the goods being delivered, and you as a seller. It's just night and day.
0: You just mentioned payments as like kind of the tip of the spear. And this is a great example. I think this kind of put fintech on the map, if you will, at least in the kind of public retail investor mindset a little bit. At one point, a couple of years ago, PayPal's market cap was greater than that of Bank of America. And right now, even being down 80% or so from its all-time highs in 2021, it still has a $73 billion market cap. It has 47% gross margins. They're going to do close to $30 billion in sales this year. It is a very profitable company. It trades at 13 times earnings and two and a half times sales. And they're expected to grow, let's say, earnings double digits for the next few years or so. So the public market, at least investors in the public markets, they're basically saying this trade is over. So the pull forward and the adoption and all that sort of stuff. And it's interesting to me because I look at that and I say that's as cheap as chips. And we're looking at a NASDAQ that's up. 30%. We're seeing this frenzy in and around AI. I have to assume that a lot of what you just talked about, the way you're describing the way a lot of these businesses are being built, it's a lot of machine learning built into a lot of this, especially when it comes to lending and payments. And so talk to me a little bit about what you're seeing in the private markets and what is going on in the public markets, because it's really a tale of two cities now. And again, going back to my conversation with Trevor and Stuart last week, they're starting to see green shoots in the in the private markets here and they're seeing some excitement and maybe it's in and around the edges of kind of a lot of the AI frenzy that's going on, because a lot of these companies were built on those ethos, if you will, right? You had to embed these sorts of technologies to do better than the incumbents, right? To These large, like stodgy banks that, yes, invest billions of dollars in tech, but they're not doing it particularly well.
2: I think, first of all, the thing that will stay with us no matter what is there was this sense that every tech company should trade at this revenue multiple that was in the, in 2021, everyone traded at these kind of high revenue multiples, and all revenue was treated equal. And obviously, From our background, like, ultimately, it's coming down to cash flows and earnings, right? And actually, even more so these days, cash flows adjusted for stock-based compensation, which is a huge impact there. Our expectation is that world is gone, and you're going to have to look at things relative to the right comparable set of what they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. So I think in some ways, there's a little bit of reality that's coming into financial services, which are, if you're doing net interest margin business, like, Mm -hmm. you're going to trade more like... A traditional lender, then you should trade like Salesforce. It's just you have much more in common with them. You have the same kind of r- structural risk. You have the same cyclical dynamics. And so I think that that is something that is here to stay and we have to just internalize as as an industry, right? So not to say PayPal in particular because they're a combination of different businesses, but I think that ultimately you're gonna be looking at some of the parts for all these businesses and that's gonna be a really important piece of how we underwrite anything. Series A, we're thinking about What is this ultimately trade at and what are the real life comps? Yes, it's going to have some tech pixie dust. Yes, it should be growing more aggressively, but you can't have that in your underwriting to assume that's going to work. So I think that in terms of the private markets and how much they've internalized this, I think it's moving slowly. The public investors obviously get it. And then there's the crossover guys and then it goes late stage and then early stage. And I think it's seeping its way into series A. Seed is still a party. People has not gone down materially. Our friends at ENIAC actually just wrote a post on that I thought was interesting. And so I think that we're still in the early days of just digesting a new economic reality and having that work through the little economy that is startups, many of which sell to each other, many of which were effectively levered to the growth of spend and headcount at other startups or the acquisition of customers through other startups. Anybody who's in this pre-public world where this hasn't flowed through, I think there's still a little bit of reckoning that's going to come. And I think on a valuation basis, and it's not even a valuation basis, it's all right, maybe your investors have marked to market. Mm-hmm. Maybe you've even internally mm-hmm. understood that, but you're still thinking I have enough cash flow to get to this point. But increasingly, more and more companies will have to make decisions as that kind of cash runway comes back in. And so I think we're going to see a lot of consolidation. All right, so uh,
0: I wanted to go there yeah. because here's a great example. So you brought up Toast before. This yeah. is a company that's trading down considerably from its late 2021 IPO. It IPO'd at IPO debt. 40 boxes trading 22 and a half. It's got a $12 billion uh, market cap. They have a billion in cash and, and no real debt, but they're still losing money. They're growing sales, let's say 20% a year, 23% gross margins. This is not something that's that exciting, although it, it checks a lot of the boxes of things that you're interested in, in being disruptive. And if there's still going to be a reckoning in the private markets for some valuations of companies that did raises at big valuations back in late 21 or yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah. I don't know how a company like this works in, in the public markets to a $20 billion market cap back to where it was. It's still down 65% from its all time high. It's just, we like the one thing that the NASDAQ up, let's say 30% this year is masking. We didn't really have a prolonged period, I think, of a reckoning, if yeah. you will.
2: because or there was a mini reckoning. It was,
0: yeah. there was a mini reckoning. And it did start in 2021. The Nasdaq still closed up on the year in yeah. 2021. But crypto started selling off. SPAC started selling yep. off. Recent IPOs started selling off. So the high valuation, losing money, started selling off. And then the S&P topped out the first week in 2022. And then we had a bear market. but just the flip of the calendar this year and it's parties back on here.
2: Yeah. Also, I think it's like, where's that coming from? You're watching the public markets more actively than I am. I think it's coming from NVIDIA. It's coming from Microsoft. It's coming from the biggest biggest platform companies that I think rightfully you look at and you say this kind of LLM explosion should disproportionately benefit them, at least in the near term. And I think that it's probably right. I'm not sure that's working its way down to toast. I do think that if we look back in 2021, the thing that Maybe we got right, and I believe we got right. There weren't a lot of things. But as a market, I think we looked at a lot of these tech companies, and I think we said the the TAMs are just much bigger than we anticipated. Mm -hmm. The staying power of these companies to just compound over time is much bigger than anticipated, and their defensibility is increasing over time because of some of the network dynamics that they work through. And I think that's how I would look at something like a toast. I think that's how I would look at something like a square, which is to say that they are still just scratching the surface of the industries that they can be going after. Single percentage points. And I think not only in terms of their install base, but in terms of what they can do from that position. And so I think that would be my long-term view, which is there's been an adjustment. These guys went down 80%, maybe they popped back 20%. We kind of are back at near historic tenure multiples. And I think that's the playing field we live on. But I think the exciting thing over the long arc is that this is the direction things are moving. We still live in a world where People are working on servers in office. I think we're still in the early innings of a lot of the trends that we get excited about. And I think seeing a lot of trends now start combining with each other. So if you think about embedded fintech, vertical software, cloud software, microservices to make the software development faster and cheaper, now AI, which will impact both what it takes to build a software company, what it takes to distribute a software company, the broad impact on the economy. I think that's like Seeing these things compound on each other is also going to just exacerbate that trend. That's why we do what we do. You can look and say, all right, the market has to digest these new valuations. All right, we're going to have a couple years where things are going to be tough and probably will get tougher for this little sub economy, even if the broader economy doesn't have a hard landing. But over the long arc, you gotta be so excited about where we sit and the opportunities ahead. Yeah, and I think to
0: your point right now in the first six months of 2023, most of the gains have been accrued to these large platform companies, like you said, who have been positioned for this sort of excitement around the first product. I think that people can see commercialized in and around AI, but it's gonna be a lot of other, these other examples that you just gave that are a bit more niche or a bit more verticalized that are gonna have a, a very long runway once we get comfortable with the IPOs. Well, listen, Adam Nelson, I really appreciate you coming over and having this conversation with us. I hope we can do it again. I'm sure we will in Uh, the not so distant future. Thanks a lot for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.